And hello, I am Mark Thompson here for Jank on The Conversation. Always a pleasure to sit in with you. I know, you like me, you come for the conversation, but you stay for that music that Bart ramps up in and out of all the segments. I've worn my credibility glasses today. Yes, we will get COVID-19 news in, and we'll talk about human behavior in relation to COVID-19 because of the hysteria that's kicked in and the worry that's kicked in. We're all worried but what's the appropriate amount of worry and how to affect human behavior? We'll get into that in the second half of the conversation. I want to start with a, a topic that I know is dear to many, and that is cannabis. That's marijuana. And Rudy Reyes joins us. He's the vice president, presidential nominee of the Legalized Marijuana Now Party. Hi, Rudy. How you doing, Mark? I'm well. You know, I'm a passionate advocate for those of you who uh, are marijuana users. I don't get high myself. But I never understood why this substance, which has medicinal uh, properties and has, you know, uh, curative properties and uh, all these uh, properties that involve health, uh, shouldn't be legal, even as alcohol, which I think has none of those things probably, is legal. Well, you're looking at something that does go back to alcohol and prohibition. Unfortunately, United States got caught in this situation where we've been allowed to I don't know, misthink that cannabis is evil. As Harry Anslinger himself tried to push, it was more deadly and more monstrous than Frankenstein himself. And that's an actual quote from back in those days. Um, it was something that the paper companies and various other companies like Nylon decided would only destroy their business, so they fought it from the get-go. The paper co I have to the paper companies? Why did why were they worried about it? Well, when you realize that they were, you know, selling newspapers and hemp alone could completely change and revolutionize that whole industry. They were fighting that. Uh, Rudy, I love that you're such a historian on this. I, really, you have such a sort of granular knowledge of it all. And, and yet your own personal story is so compelling. You found relief through cannabis uh, for chronic pain as a result of injuries that you suffered during fire. Correct. Uh, before my injuries, I was and am an archeologist. So I have a really good history background and understanding of what happened. Um, because of my injuries, I was injured in the 2003 San Diego wildfires, which at the time was, I don't know, considered one of the biggest fires in the world. I mean, I was getting hero letters from Japan. I was getting all kinds of, you know, you know, keep it going type deal. And I didn't know at the time that my life would be drastically changed so much by this simple plant. As I was in the hospital, they had the problem with me slowly overdosing on these hardcore narcotics they were giving me. So the only option, at least according to my doctor at the time, was to try to get me off them completely. And he was gonna try this experimental cannabis idea. And it's funny, as I was learning about your story, I learned that the, the cannabis didn't work to alleviate the pain so much as it did to sort of take your mind away from the pain. Exactly. It was more like, and to give you a good metaphor, it was like I was watching TV or Gilligan's Island to where the pain wasn't the main concern on my brain and constantly causing me issues. I was able to divert it into other things and enjoy life. And that was the big change. That was the big thing for me. So uh, when you get out of the hospital from this incredible experience, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're lovely not to dwell on the all the details of the fire, but it really was quite intense. I mean, uh, you had uh, this inferno going on as you ran through it, from what I understand, right? I, I don't mind talking about the details. It's just people don't like getting involved. I mean, 
I ran through 20 feet of flames. I was no less than 10 feet away from 20 foot fire on both sides of me. It was a tunnel that I had to run through of no flame because, you know, our roads have the 10 foot clearance on each side. So because of that, I had something to run out of. But the reality is most of my injuries that you see are not from catching on fire. My injuries are from radiant heat. Literally at 400 degrees, the skin melts. So those fires being guessed about 2,000 to 3,000 degrees at the time because they found my car melted the next day. I mean, I'm lucky to be here. I'm a 75% burn survivor. I lost a finger. I lost an ear. And a lot of skin damage, a lot of work was done to keep me around. The whole point of that is I have to fight also to keep myself going and to make it better for others. That's my give back. And I do want to talk about that in just a second. Before I leave the full story, though, of the fire, when you got out of the hospital and the injuries from the fire, uh, it wasn't necessarily a smooth transition. I think you had issues with the cops, raiding your place. It was sort of a, your story is kind of bizarre. I wasn't, okay, again, I was a teacher. So the way I was expected to do it was take care of your own and keep it nice and quiet. So I started to do exactly that. I started to take care of my own medicine, medical cannabis, growing my own plants and doing my own thing. Well, during this whole time, and I didn't know that my county of San Diego had been opposing the medical cannabis laws here in California since their inception. So it became a thing of fighting against this county. And next thing I knew, I was raided. They came to my house, there was a knock. They came to check to see what I was growing. As soon as they found out I was growing at all, it was handcuff you, sit down on the on the couch. Well, we take, raid, look at whatever money you had. And they pretty much took it and left me with a card. They never arrested me. They never took me to jail. They never did any of that. Instead, they left me with a district attorney card and said for me to contact him Monday. My option on that Saturday was turn to the media and allow the media to blow this up because I'm a nationally recognized hero, especially at this time. Right, at that time, everybody knew you. They didn't know you were Rudy Reyes? That was the big thing. A lot of those cops did know exactly who I was and they did know my story. And at the time, they were just thinking they were doing their job, you know, doing a federal raid because San Diego specifically was looking at federal laws. So it turned into a thing of contact the district attorney, contact the media. I contacted the media and the media blew it up and we made San Diego look horrible that night. Um, Long story short, I get a call from the district attorney. Two weeks later, they're dropping all charges and telling me so long as I stay within medical marijuana, I really won't have an issue with them. So Uh, this this led you to to a life of advocacy and uh, to political advocacy uh, again sort of in service of this goal, which is to legalize marijuana. Correct. What ended up happening after that was the county of San Diego decided they were going to sue on a federal level, stating that the medical cannabis laws in California were not up to federal standards. And there we went. So we waited for the federal appeals court. Long story short, the federal appeals court wouldn't hear the case from the county of San Diego. I de facto won. So we fought over that medical marijuana ID card there then, and I won that too. I found out that my problem wasn't really with the people of California, it was with the politicians and the fact that they themselves didn't want to make any changes in the laws. They were just dragging their feet as much as possible. And, and why were they dragging their feet, Rudy? This is always an interesting thing to me. The political side of this seems marked by what you're talking about, delays and feet dragging. And yet we know that it, that the legalization of marijuana has tremendous popular support. My best answer for you is they're pulling to their political basis, which has been so anti-marijuana, anti-pro-police, just 
nonstop this, this cycle that we live in here in the United States that they didn't realize that the public had changed, that they didn't realize that things were going against him and they decided to just fight the best they could. And so now you've seen in California the legalization of marijuana. I mean, it really like if you cut to today in this movie, uh, you have to be on the one hand gratified by what you see, but California has, you could argue, mishandled this whole thing. And I wouldn't say so much California mishandled it. The people knew what they were doing when they were proposing these laws and ordinances. The mishandling was county by county, politician by politician. Unfortunately, this law went county by county, allowing those supervisors to manage and approve. And a lot of the county supervisors decided not to move, not to just go forward with it, you know, postpone as much as possible. And in doing that, they created laws which hurt the public more than helped it. So you're saying that the local ordinances as handled by those that to, to whom you just referred, those local ordinances make it tough to even know exactly what laws apply in various places in California? Well, look at how it is. If I go to LA, Los Angeles County, I mean, they've legalized and you can find a shop on every other corner pretty much. I mean, not that extreme, but for a minute it was like Starbucks. Here in San Diego, they've made all shops illegal. Only delivery drivers are legal, but that's actually catch 22 because they want to catch you driving around with it. So the, the way you look at this is how am I as one patient in California, which is one state and I should be allowed to take whatever I need, my medication is wherever I need it, but every jurisdiction has a different law. So, so, tell, me, so tell me about your campaign as the vice presidential uh, nominee for the Legalized Marijuana Now Party. We have a, a platform which is based on number one, legalization of hemp across the nation for the industrial use. We need that to be able to change our nation. It will make big changes in regards to paper, plastic, oils, all of that. Our second arm would be medical marijuana. We need patients like me to have access to marijuana no matter what. And, and simply put, we think that those two are not big arms to ask, especially currently with the situation we're in. We need money. And we need a way to handle these people so that they don't have to be caught on hardcore narcotics. The last arm of our party is the idea of complete legalization so that people won't be going to jail and won't be suffering from that anymore. I mean, we're not asking for much, although if we're allowed to make these changes, it's it'll change our society. Would you envision a society where people are getting high and uh, lighting up on the street like they do cigarettes? Or do you see a more... Um, restricted type arrangement where you you don't have like open drinking, let's say uh, beverage containers on the street. In other words, in a perfect world for Rudy, what would it look like? Well, I've learned, especially me running for politics, everything requires regulations. Everybody needs, you know, boundaries and barriers and how to handle this. Cops need, you know, how far to go and how far they can't go. So of course there has to be some type of regulation set down. We can't just be smoking in the streets and enjoying it like it was tobacco in the 70s and 80s. No, unfortunately, there has to be some type of regulation set, but the regulations shouldn't be so stringent and hurtful that they that they literally destroy people's lives sometimes. And that's what's currently happening here in the United States. Yeah, I don't understand why you still have to fight this fight, but you do, and I, uh, I think you deserve congratulations for having gone through so much and you use this marijuana as a palliative, you know, and it was so effective, and that you now have it still within you to pursue this political battle. I say bravo. Again, Rudy Reyes, 
Uh, you can reach him at Rudy Reyes SD for San Diego on Twitter, at Rudy Reyes. Uh, again, Rudy, what a pleasure to meet you and talk to you for a while. I appreciate your time, Mike. Yeah. Or Mark, I apologize for uh, that. No, no sweat, no sweat. All the best, my friend. You too. Rudy Reyes. All right, when we come back, we'll get into some coronavirus talk, uh, COVID-19 and human behavior next on The Conversation. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Mark Thompson. A pleasure to welcome in Dr. Shut Chakraborty. She is someone who is a really just what the doctor ordered, if I can use the expression, a risk and behavioral scientist. And we'll get into a little bit of risk assessment and uh, also the science of human behavior as it relates to COVID-19, to the coronavirus and this uh, latest iteration of the coronavirus that we're all dealing with. Hello, doctor. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, these days I feel just uh, calmer with a doctor anywhere near me, even if it's uh, virtually, as, uh, as is the case now. Uh, what is, what is uh, risk assessment and risk management? Explain that to us. So it's really understanding the big picture of a risk. We can't look at risk in silos. We are so interconnected, we're globalized as a uh, global society and our transportation is, system is so fast that whether we're talking about climate change impacts, infectious disease, food security issues, um, transmission of different diseases that are stemming from other parts of the world, maybe not even coronavirus, but those that are used mosquito vectors, for example, that are taking diseases that are endemic normally to the lower latitudes or the tropics that are now we're seeing in other places like Zika. This is needing to look at the big picture. And that's what risk assessment and risk management does. We don't study risk in silos. We look at how these different risks are related to one another and how decisions about a risk result in unintended consequences sometimes. And then what does that big picture look like? So when we talk about the risk in relation to this COVID-19 outbreak, for example, uh, apply then the risk management and the behavioral science to that situation. Right. That's, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking me that because we really need to get a grip on this and take a put it in context of history and in the context of the bigger picture. We've had infectious disease outbreaks for as long as we can remember. It's something that happens um, on occasion. And when it happens, leading up to it, most people are complacent because if it's not in your face, despite every healthcare official or scientist um, promising that this is not a when, but not an if, but when situation, we know that infectious disease is going to break out. We have field epidemiologists on the ground who are surveying hotspots around the world all the time. So that should make Americans feel much better and safer in terms of there is a system in place behind the scenes that we're not hearing about all the time. So it's not always in our face, which leads to complacency. But then inevitably when an outbreak does you know, rear its ugly head, then you have this panic that emerges. And that is by a playbook, and it is almost every single box that you would expect to see checked in terms of complacency, then panic related to a disease outbreak is what's happening here with COVID-19. We've seen it in the past with Ebola, with SARS, with MERS. Pick your infectious disease. We are by the playbook in terms of how we are processing this risk and how we're reacting to it. And, and so what we've seen is uh, these worst case scenarios drawn out, and then we've seen sort of even uh, best case scenarios that still sound like worst case scenarios. And then behavioral, uh, I guess just human behavior kicks in and behavioral activities that are quote normal in relation to that news 
They lead us to buy everything off the shelves, to hoard, to uh, hunker down. I mean, we all become doomsday preppers. What, right, exactly, I, and it's really disappointing that we haven't learned over all these previous outbreaks exactly how to proportionately react to the reality of the risk. Ultimately, what we study as a risk community is the base rate statistics of impact to human overall well-being, and that's not just human health, but also social impacts, economic impacts. We again, we don't live in silos, and we live in relation to one another. The decisions and choices we make as individuals impact those around us, mainly our close contacts when it comes to um, the health component of an infectious disease outbreak, but very much our communities and our states. And it goes up the chain from there. We're a global community. So we really need to remember that our behaviors are not have ripple effects and they are not isolated to just us. And what is so imperative to remember when something like this breaks out is how much of how much of our reaction is based on the virus itself or is it based on the panic and it's based on other people's reactions to it remember nothing about this virus has changed from the moment we learned about it from the moment we first heard about its mortality rates its transmission rates if anything the news has gotten better about that because we're learning more and as we're learning more as a global public health infrastructure system we're able to address it move in real time and move faster and better than we ever have in human history in our ability to work together to sequence the genome to move quickly to get the vaccines out there which will still take you know at least a year but the point is is that we are better prepared and we have better governance than we ever have had so well, I would I would just challenge maybe the last part of what you said because I think one of the reasons that people are panicking and maybe I I, I don't know uh, probably they misunderstand a lot of what you've just uh, laid out because we only get bits and pieces and I do want to challenge you on another thing that you just laid out but right now let's just talk about the governance it does appear as though we were late to the party with uh, we were late to the party with uh, isolating uh, populations that were displaying even symptoms of this. We were late to the party with vaccines, with the systems, the pandemic uh, strategists who were there at the White House, as you know. I mean, I don't mean to make it a political thing, but the fact is they were, they were let go because they were Obama holdovers. So it felt as though a little bit of the infrastructure concerning pandemic might have been lacking. And maybe that leads to panic on down the way. Oh, 100%. We were not prepared for this. We weren't as prepared as we could have been or should have been. And this is another example of when nothing is happening, the public health care experts and system are always insisting for more resources. And there's a reason for that, because we know inevitably these diseases are going to come out. This one is relatively mild. We'll look back on it and Compared to disease outbreaks in the past, it's bad, but compared to what it could have been, it's gonna come across as mild, right? But there is the potential for a serious outbreak that is both lethal and transmits as quickly as we're seeing COVID-19 transmit. For that reason, if we aren't proactive and prepared leading up to that disease, from emerging into society, then we are going to be in a situation like what we're seeing now. This is almost a dress rehearsal for it, and we're not doing a great job. But what I, the point I was trying to make was that we are still better prepared than we've ever been in history. But are we prepared for a future really lethal outbreak? Not even close, and that's what we're learning. So the benefit and what we're gonna gather from this COVID-19 outbreak is where the gaps were, where the weaknesses were, because we really need to figure out exactly what we need to do at the local levels all the way to the global level to accommodate when a real seriously lethal disease breaks out.
And we need to be proactive about it. And that's why we have this system in place that is trying to actually prevent a disease from ever emerging. Imagine there's 1.67 million diseases out there that haven't emerged yet because we are so proactive. But again, because you're not hearing about it, it's only when a disease like COVID-19 makes it to human to human transmission that you have this mass hysteria and this feeling that we are not protected. Ultimately, we are we are better protected, but we need to be prepared for something far worse in the future. Wow, so, so well said. I was feeling better until you got to that 1.6 million diseases part that still haven't, uh, and then I started to feel worse. Uh, t tell me about uh, the first thing you said. You say, you know, we've been through these things before, and I'm thinking, well, yes and no, right? We've been through uh, MERS and SARS and Ebola, you mentioned, but Ebola didn't really affect the communities at large the way we're seeing the widespread infection of communities in this country with this. Right, no, and that's that's completely fair. We cannot really compare this in that sense. Um, there were unique differences between these various infectious disease outbreaks, but the reality of the risk versus the perception was very much the same. So we allow new things, unfamiliar things, things that we don't have information about yet, things that impact vulnerable populations. Children usually are, the any, any risk that impacts children, um, and the elderly, we prescribe much more risk to. And we overestimate its probability and frequency. We saw that with Ebola. Again, it was the playbook of risk perception. When you check off all these boxes of what brings us fear, then you, you can predict that people are going to have a non-calibrated reaction, which means we will systematically overreact to something like an Ebola, to something like a SARS, to something like this COVID-19. And unfortunately, the reverse is true too. We systematically underreact to a climate change event. And because we don't perceive that same immediate impact, that same impact to the elderly, that same impact to the children. So it is something that we have seen is really true across any major global risk that has emerged. How do we better calibrate ourselves and our governance so that we are reacting to a way that is proportional to the risk that is posed to the globe? Because we have limited resources. So ultimately, if we aren't really prepared for disease outbreaks like a disease X in the future, then we're doing ourselves a massive disservice. But if we are over allocating resources to diseases or to other risks that don't deserve that amount of time attention and also causing unintended consequences and ripple effects, which I am really fearful might be the case with COVID-19, then we lose as a whole. We do not have endless resources here and we need to be better aligned to the reality of the risk that we're facing. You know, we're running out of time. I love what you just said, but then you took it to COVID-19 and I'm wondering, really? I mean, if 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 a couple of million people die from this, I mean, and maybe that's the low number, uh, isn't that worthy? And we only have a few seconds left, but I wonder, isn't that worthy of, 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 of considerable assets going towards something like that as a threat? So there's no universal um, answer to that, right? Because risk tolerance and tolerance for exposure varies across cultures, across different ethics, morals, countries, geographic locations. There's so many different views on what is an acceptable amount of exposure and risk for a certain community. Uh, we don't have a universal recommendation for social distancing, for containment, for quarantines. We're seeing that in the United States where you have different communities reacting in different ways. I would argue that this has to be based on the community transmission. 
what how do you define a community and what is the transmission because if it's intense then yes you should be putting in the appropriate amount of resources to negate that but if there is not a sign necessarily of an outbreak or symptoms then to be over then to overreact and to put in too many resources there's there are unintended consequences from that that overall might increase the risk of that community that's what we need to be careful of. Fascinating conversation. I'd love to continue it another time. Dr. Shet Chakraborty, you know, your podcast, you still do the podcast? Yes, risky behavior. Yeah. The uh, radio station is closed because out of abundance over caution. Oh, of course. But yes, yeah. Normally yeah, yeah, every yeah. Friday live. Uh, but that's really great. And you have a book coming out too, I think. Don't you? Securing Our Future How to Thrive on a Rapidly Changing Planet? Yes, the title is shifting slightly. It's actually talking about overreactions to risk, but I cannot wait to share that with you. Thank you. Well, we'll have you back then. It was a pleasure to meet you and thank you. You as well, thank you. Be well. That's it, that's all. Little marijuana and heroism in the mix and, and a discussion of COVID from the standpoint of behavioral science and overreaction and underreaction. Always a pleasure, I have a podcast. It's called The Edge with Mark Thompson. Check it out sometime, but I'll see you back here soon. And until then, bye-bye.